0: there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on twitter or even be our friend at facebook if you'd like to talk to a real person we can be reached at 323-660-1175 thanks for listening and enjoy
1: so i'm going to turn it over to libby who um, is going to do most of the intros
2: and uh, thank you <laughs> all right. Thanks for coming, guys. It's so great to see all of you here. Um, we're really proud to introduce this anthology today. Uh, my name's Libby Flores. I am the program coordinator at Penn USA, and I was also a 2008 emerging voice myself. Um, For those who aren't familiar with the program, Emerging Voices is a literary fellowship program that aims to provide new writers who lack access with the tools they will need to launch a professional writing career. This anthology came to me a year ago when Adam Summers, the executive director of Penn, handed me this project. This was to be our very first EV anthology. Sarah Balcom and I started collecting and editing the Evie's work, reaching all the way back to 1997. As we collected these poems, stories, and excerpts, the title Strange Cargo arose. As writers, we carry with us stories before they are written. In our own way, we are a host of our own emotional cargo. Strange is is defined in Merriam-Webster's dictionary is to be of external origin, kind or character, exciting wonder or awe, not known before, heard or seen. This most definitely defines the writers in this book tonight. I am proud to introduce Janet Fitch. Janet has been a wonderful asset to the EV program. She's been a mentor and year after year, EVs come to her house on a Monday night and she shares her journey of writing with them, the hardships and the joys. She was gracious enough to write the strange cargoes lovely forward. Janet is the author of novels White Oleander and Paint it Black. Her stories have appeared in anthologies and journals such as Los Angeles in a War, Black Clock, A Room of One's Own, and Black Warrior Review. She teaches creative writing in the MPW program at USC and is writing a novel set in the Revo- Russian Revolution. Janet Fitch. Woo.
3: this is great. Well, let's see. Emerging voices. Um, you have to understand what it's like to be a struggling writer. You know, you're, I was setting type uh, for newspapers in Oregon and Washington, and I had never met a writer. And that's where people come from. You know, the the literary world is just so far away. It's something that happens at universities, it happens in graduate schools, it happens way far from wherever you are. And the world in which people actually did what I was trying very hard to do was... I felt like I was circling the outer planets, you know, just circling and somewhere else life was happening, but way far from where I was. And um, it took me years to get even into the inner planets, let alone to land somewhere. And I blundered my way through every mistake a writer can make. I just. It was as long a process as it could have possibly did. This howling in the wilderness defeats many a promising writer. It's pretty crushing. And those stories are forever lost to literature. They're forever lost. Uh, And it's a tragedy that occurs every day. It's like stars going out one by one and when I was approached by Penn USA to serve as a mentor in this program, and there are several writers here who have served as mentors in the program, I see Diana Wagman back there, I see Michael Datcher here, and there's probably some more uh, as well. Um, They asked us to mentor, to take on an emerging writer, um, which This project, it takes on, it's the only one of its kind in the nation. It takes on six to eight writers in the early stages of a writing career, in poetry, in fiction, and in creative nonfiction, and just showers them with help, with guidance, with encouragement. For eight months, they're assigned a mentor from among the LA literary community, and who better than Penn to be able to, you know, collar call writers to help young writers. Um, and over 50 authors have so far accepted Penn's invitation to mentor emerging voices, fellows, and to help them both in developing their art and in clarifying the mechanics of literary life, which is they're two different things. And a, an emerging writer needs both of them. So, as I worked through with my EV, my first year in the program, I kept thinking that I wish this had existed when I was struggling. Um, Because not only do they receive a mentor tailored to genre, style, and interests, they receive free classes at UCLA's Writers Program. Uh, They attend Uh, intimate evenings with authors to discuss craft and the road to publication. Um, They workshop among themselves and they benefit from instruction in the fine art of public reading, which becomes very important, more and more it becomes important in a writer's career and so you're gonna see you're gonna see what what happens uh, as the result of that. Um, They get two public readings in major venues locally And the inspiration for the program came in 1994 with a forum held at Central Library concerning uh, writing the immigrant experience, when it became clear that certain specific problems faced first and second generation immigrant writers. Uh, And then widening out from that initial impulse, understanding that writers from a host of communities, ethnic, social, gender, and geographic, were unheard because of lack of access to the larger literary world. So this program was founded to repair and reverse that situation. Um, It gives people an entree to American literary life in a big way. And it now reaches out throughout the country Uh, Selecting writers by talent, experience, potential, and goals, and all are people whose progress was in some way threatened by their lack of access to literary community. So, so far, 92 alumni have produced over 132 works of published poetry and prose. (laughs) So the the 29 works in this collection represent the culmination of 14 years of Penn USA Emerging Voices program, and this reader is grateful they have not been extinguished by isolation, despair, and neglect, but have received the help to allow their unique sound, that irreplaceable vision, to reach the reading world. So now you're going to hear them. Thank you.
2: We just finished a fabulous year, 2010 of Emerging Voices, and I'm gonna introduce uh, one of the writers from that year. Natasha Dion is a 2010 Redlow Scholarship recipient, 2010 Penn Emerging Voice Fellow and a Highlights Foundation Scholarship recipient and award-winning screenplay, screenplay writer. She is pinning her debut novel, The Spinning Wheel, a dark journey of three outcast women who on the eve of the Civil War are fighting the battle of their lives. Natasha
4: wow. this has been an incredible journey these last few months starting with the Penn Emerging Voice Fellowship and then on to Bread Loaf <laughs> They're here. Thank you for representing Penn. (laughs) Or for supporting Penn. Um, And then here, being here at this amazing reading and being anthologized. This is just amazing. So I'm going to be reading, as Livy said, from my novel in progress, The Spinning Wheel. And this is the opening chapter. I'm dead. I died a nigga a long time ago. Before you were born, for your mother was born, for your grandmother, I was 17, still am I reckon. And everyone that was there that night is dead now too, so it don't matter that I was a nigger or a slave. What matters is that I had a daughter who had a daughter and they had theirs. Family I could have saved a whole lot of trouble by telling them the secrets I know. You see, there's some stories that mothers never tell their daughters, secret stories that would prove a mother was once young, done things with men she could never tell, in ways she could never tell, in places she could never. Private stories where love, any semblance of love, would lead a person like me to the place I was that night in 1848 when I died a nigga. For two days and two nights, we've been running, me and the child inside me. Pain is trying to get me to stop, make me push away the pain, but I won't push. My pretty yellow dress is stained red and brown now, but not by the blood of the man I killed like they think. It's mine. The dark of night's been hiding my running for a while, muffling the sounds of my chest gushing in and out from my own hard breaths. Every few steps, the blue light of the moon sneaks past the treetops and strokes my face, urging me on, the only mercy I get in these hot Alabama woods. The devil's coming and I have to keep moving for her, for me. But the pain's burning so bad now I can't hardly do nothing but fall against this old tree, hand slips sliding down, it's bark stinging. Please baby, please stay. They want to kill us, stay inside. I keep us safe. Barking from the hunting dogs is shooting across the air and bumping around inside me They must have smelt me on the branches that brushed across me and snapped under my feet I have to move faster, run like sister once told me I beg my belly, hold on to me, it ain't time But this baby got a plan Her head's at my opening spot, burning hot Ripping my hips wide apart, splintering bones Stabbing my insides, carving a way out Oh no baby, please don't come, please don't I hold in my screams and bow over hard in the dirt knees first. A man's voice shouts, this way, she's up this way. I want to live, want this baby to live, but she's betraying me. Every muscle in my body slamming shut, so I push. She's tearing through me, I push. I don't want to, but I push. Screaming mute deep inside myself, pushing so hard, but hollering so low so they can't hear me. A wave of warm water pours out of me, carrying my joy and deep sorrow. Before God and this oak tree, she come, and she don't cry. I guess she wants us to live too, want me to teach her things, keep her from the pain I've been through. She see me, and I see in her the good part of love. The weight of them push me over these dogs, clawing and biting at my back, but the pain ain't gonna make me give her up to them. I gotta protect her, get up, keep running. I feel my legs so I bend them, feel them firm on the ground so I push up. I hold her close with one arm and pull up with the other, I can make it. I tell myself again how to run, counting my steps, one, two, one, two, one, two. A flash of light, a loud pop, nothing. My last thought is to not fall on my baby. Thank you.
2: Our next reader is Kara Chow. Kara Chow was a 2001 Emerging Voices Fellow. Fall Dance will appear in the novel Bitter Melon in spring 2011, pu- published by Edgemont USA. A native of Hong Kong, Kara grew up in the Richmond district of San Francisco where this story is set. Kara.
1: Shorter than Natasha. Uh, okay. My novel, Bitter Melon, is a love-hate, mother-daughter story. It will be published in January by Egmont USA. In this scene, 17-year-old Frances Ching sneaks behind her mother's back to go to the fall dance in hopes of seeing Derek, whom she has a crush on. She is dragging along her reluctant best friend Teresa. The dance is almost over, and to Francis' chagrin, there is no sign of Derek. You know what we should do, I say. Go home, Teresa says, her face lighting up. No, we should forget about stupid Derek and go ask some other boys to dance. Teresa's face falls. We each ask one boy to dance, I say. Then we go home. We never have to attend another dance again, deal? I have a better idea. What if you go ask some boys to dance and I go hide out and wait for you to finish? But I need your help. I'll cheer for you from the sidelines. But that's not the same. We have to be in it together. Teresa groans. Come on, I say. Just one song. Teresa sighs. Fine, just this once. With half bravery and half trepidation, we march arm-in-arm back out to the gymnasium. The music has gone from rap and hip-hop to slow. The DJ announces that this is the last song for the night. More couples are gravitating towards the dance floor. Okay, last dance, last chance, I say. I'll go left and you go right. Afterwards, we'll meet back at this spot and report back to each other on how it went. Teresa nods. We let go of each other and forge ahead. I scan the clusters of boys. Who would be a good candidate? He can't be too cute or popular looking because I need a fair chance of success, but he can't be too unattractive either because I'll actually have to dance with him. The first guy I see is tall and lean, with dark skin and giant black doe eyes. One lock of his shiny, jet-black hair curls lazily over his forehead. He smiles at a friend, revealing a perfect set of white teeth. Out of my league, pass. The second boy I see has frizzy brown hair, thick glasses, and sweaty, oily skin that is peppered with acne. His bulging figure makes his striped t-shirt and cords look two sizes too small. His belly is protruding over his waistband. As he laughs with his friends, he looks like he's wheezing and snorting. The thought of him holding me close makes me shudder. Pass. I see other guys but their bodies are turned away from me and they are half enshrouded in darkness. The song is halfway finished. I must choose someone fast. There's a boy just a few feet in front of me. He is wearing a polo shirt and khakis. He wears black framed glasses that would look nerdy on someone else, but on him they look artsy and intellectual. Though he's standing with a couple of friends, he's not conversing with them. He's gazing out onto the dance floor, looking alone and lost. Bingo! Here's my chance. I march over to him. Excuse me, I say. He doesn't hear me. I tap him on the shoulder. Excuse me, I shout. Wanna dance? (laughs) He hesitates. His eyes travel from my face down to my feet and back up to my face again. No thanks, he says. His friends are staring at me. I back away a few steps. Then I quickly retreat to the designated meeting spot. I half expect to see Teresa waiting for me there, panicked and desperate, relieved to see me at last. She would tell me that she lost her nerve and couldn't go through with it. Then I would tell her my story and she'd comfort me saying that at least I had the courage to try. Or better yet, she would share a story similar to mine and we would commiserate about how awful boys are and how we don't want to have anything to do with them ever again. But Teresa is nowhere to be seen. After searching the periphery twice, I reluctantly search the dance floor. Then I see her towards the front. The orbiting lights make the white parts of her dress glow. She is swaying awkwardly with a boy who is a few inches taller and somewhat stocky. He is gazing at her and smiling and she is gazing and smiling back at him. Teresa got someone, and I didn't. They bump into another couple and take a few steps to the side to give them birth. As they move aside, I see the couple behind them. It's Derek, and he's with Diana. Thank you.
2: Our next reader is David Marsalin. He is a writer and microbiologist that always impressed me about him. (laughs) From Sherman Oaks, California. In 2008, he was an Emerging Voice Fellow. A finalist in Glimmer Train's very short Fiction Contest, and a first runner-up in Opiums Magazine 500-Word Memoir Contest. (laughs) Two of his stories have been nominated for Pishcott Prizes. His fiction has appeared in the Los Angeles Review, Rosebud, Night Train, and other literary journals. He is a staff editor at the Smoke Long Quarterly.
5: Steven. Thanks for coming, everyone. I'm going to be reading a story called Dolores. You can never depend on girls named Dolores. They weren't made for guys like us. They will meet you at a Dodger game while you make your way to the top of the stands with a textbook under your arm. They will say things like baseball is my life. Only baseball won't be their life. Every other moment will be their life. They will live out their lives in the middle of the night, sitting in their car smoking menthols, or walking home alone through the streets, careful to keep their eyes down on their own feet. They will live up to their name, Dolores, which was chosen by their mother because of how much it hurt to give birth to them. (laughs) At the beach, while you explain about the tides, your Dolores will tell you that the silence between waves is her favorite part of the ocean. Like mother nature is holding her breath, she will say. You will love her for that. You will wrap your arm around her waist while sitting on the beach and you will breathe in her secondhand smoke. When your Dolores spends the night, she will bring over a stuffed hippo named Dandy. (laughs) Dandy will get in your way while you are on top, trying to go slow and be a gentleman, trying to keep from finishing too soon. You will stare at the gap between Dolores' teeth And for part of that moment, you will hate it. And for part of that moment, you will love it. And you will thrust as if you were thrusting through that gap in her teeth. Her cell phone will ring in a movie theater. She will answer it. The blue screen making her ear glow. And afterwards, she will lean over and tell you that her father has been arrested again and will be deported in two weeks. So you want a blowjob? she will whisper. And she will unzip your jeans, and while she is going at it, you will try to remember if she has ever talked about her father before. You will notice that she is not, and with a new curiosity for her life, you will ask her if you can see the inside of her house. On a Sunday, while her family is at church, your Dolores will take you through her small house, leading you over the plastic toy cities her younger brother built, making you feel like a giant. On the wall, you will see a picture of her grandmother, showing off her tattoos, and biker jacket, and sunglasses. (laughs) There will be a leopard skin chair in the corner of the living room with a burn in the seat, and underneath an empty pie tin with a bag of pot lying inside it. Your Dolores will take you to her room, which she painted sky blue to remind her of heaven. Pictures of her friends will be tucked in along the edge of her mirror. You have a lot of friends, you will say. I used to, she will reply, and she will point out the friends who have been shot in her neighborhood, and it will be over half of them. Your Dolores will put her hands in your pockets and kiss you there, under her heaven, while the angelic eyes of her lost friends watch over you. Dolores' heart will pound against your own, breaking the rhythm that beats so steadily for 19 years of your life. You will get a catch in your throat. You will gently ease out of her embrace. With her hand held in your trembling hand, you will go down on one knee as if you are about to propose. But instead, you will only be able to apologize, head down and crying, hating yourself for reasons you don't understand. For you, school will start in fall. You will enroll in biological, physical chemistry, and biochemistry, and physiology, and California literature to keep yourself balanced. When your Dolores calls, you will not pay attention to her, and she will be happily sarcastic when she tells you that she'll call you later. She will call you later, but again, you will not have time to talk to her. You will say, you have no idea how hard it is to have responsibilities. And she will be so quiet, you can hear the sprinklers running on the other end of the telephone line. A week will go by, a month. You won't notice because you are busy trying to do well on your midterms. You will get A's in your classes. You will forget how to get to the house with a leopard skin chair, a house which was in the bad part of town anyway. Your Dolores will not call again. One night, four years later, as you are home packing to go off to your new life, you will discover Dandy, the stuffed hippo, wedged between your bed and the wall. You will rescue it and dust it off and wonder if you have an address to mail it to. But there's no time to look for that today. Pack it in one of the boxes. Take it with you for now. Display it on your bookshelf. Wait for someone to ask you about it. Then tell them about Dolores. About a time when things weren't quite so clear for you. About a time when you didn't know exactly where you were going. About a time when the ocean held its breath and you were in heaven. Thank you.
2: Tarini Sundaringam, sorry, was born in Sri Lanka and is the co-editor of Indivisible, an anthology of contemporary Southern Asian American poetry. Her own poetry has appeared in journals such as Plowshares, World Literature Today, The Progressive, and as well as anthologies such as W.W. W. Norton's Language for a New Century, Poetry from the Middle East, Asia and Beyond. She was an emerging voice fellow in 2003. Irene.
6: Oh, <laughs> I didn't realize how many people were here. <laughs> um, it's lovely to be back in LA. Um, and um, how exciting to kind of see all the, the, the younger, newer um, EVs. And um, it was really, um, it was very exciting to me to um, get, get one of the EV uh, fellowships and to get the support of um, the organization. So, and this is a beautiful book. So thank you, and I hope lots of you um, take it away with you. <laughs> um, and I'm sorry if I, I have to leave um, a little early because I have a reading for my own book related um, today. So, um, As Libby mentioned, I was born in Sri Lanka and uh, a lot of my poetry is about the civil war there and the experience of, of growing up there. Um, this poem is about... Um, an incident that set the civil war off uh, in Jaffna, one of the cities of Sri Lanka, where um, the army um, responded to civilian unrest by going into the city and burning down um, an ancient library, which had um, most of the texts of our civilization. So it was burnt down to the ground. And this is in, um, and, and I wrote the poem to talk about what it was like, um, how easily war happens, civil war happens in a country, that how everything seems normal, until it suddenly changes, and this is called Jaffna Schoolroom. Traipsing across sports grounds, picked clean by equator sun, we visit my father's school, long-distance callers at the Museum of Memory. My father points out the places where, giggling, his friends once sat names that belong to old men in London and Toronto now, names that could barely fit behind these desks. His teacher remains unchanged. Paper, dry voice, crackling, he dictates the rights of duty and decorum, the triumph of courtesy and reason over the casual accident of race. It is Jaffna, 1983. It is one day in a long, hot summer. It is one day seconds away from war. And decades from now, this is all that I'll remember of that visit to that city. The sand dust in the air, the sun bleaching dry the shutters, and the walls empty of pictures, not even a map of the world. Um, I also, um, I guess, when I've been writing, I've been struggling to find ways to um, link with the experience of being a a refugee woman with um, people from other countries and I think one of the things that strikes me is that um, um, well I, I turn to, there's a story in the Old Testament about Lot's wife and about how you know it's uh, some people have interpreted it as an example of how women are inherently disobedient when they're told not to um, turn around and look, um, they turn around and look um, but I looked at that story in a different way and I think for those of us who have seen our countries at war and our cities burning down the idea of being told do not turn around and look. I think it's about something very different. To me, that story is about some part of you is forever frozen in time looking back at that city and I think that's what to me, that's what the Bible story is saying, that she didn't literally turn into a condiment, that, it's, that <laughs> well, although there is one scholarly essay about this somewhere on the internet, but but that, that it's really valuable, that the, the best thing a woman can do is to become a valuable material like salt. But anyway, um, I thought my own view of it actually is that the story was saying that when you've seen such bloodshed, part of you remains frozen in time and that you leave a part of yourself behind. So this is called... Um, And I thought the story was kind of, it's kind of interesting in the Bible and all these scholarly texts that nowhere is the wife of Lot named. She's always Lot's wife. She hasn't got a name. And that is so much the experience of refugee women that we, um, that we become numbers um, on pieces of paper. And so this is, I guess, a piece dedicated to other people who have been through such wars and it's called Lot's Wives. We stood as women before us have stood, looking back at our burning cities, watching the smoke rise from our empty homes. It was quiet then and cold. We heard their cries, the caged birds clawing at their perches, our daughters naked in the hungry mob. Such death, the smell of justice drifting on the burnt wind. And we saw it all, saw the fire fall like rain, saw our tears track stiff white veins down our bodies, saw the brine crawl through salt-cracked skin. Now, turning in the restless night, we dream we stand there still, alone on the hill's black belly. We, the forgotten, whose names were swallowed by God.
2: Thank you. Right. Our next reader is Monica Carter. Monica lives in Los Angeles, California, and is a 2010 Emerging Voices Fellow. Her work will appear in the forthcoming issue of Pale House, Two. Ms. Carter is working on Eating the Apple, a psychological novel set in Manhattan in the 1930s. Monica. Thank you so much.
7: Um, it's really wonderful to be here, actually, because this is where I work um, <laughs> at a very limited capacity at this point, um, <laughs> or maybe not at all. I'm not sure. but. Um, Uh, and also just finishing the year as an EV fellow was um, fantastic and also I did a Lambda thing um, a Lambda Literary Fellowship just after that so I'm about to go into a cabin and cry and then um, write (laughs) so um, I appreciate y'all coming out to support um, the EV Fellowship program from Penn and on the story I'm going to read is actually not from my novel it's the short story in the book and it's an allegory and if you want to know um, how it ends, you will have to buy the book. So, <laughs> thank you. Um, anyway, okay, the story is entitled Metal. I am a warrior. I observe the sordid for my own selfish means. I see the pain in others pulsing beneath their everyday movements. I see it when they tip their glasses back full of liquor and let it course down their throats. I see it in their raucous, hollow laughter. I see it when they walk down the street and catch their own reflections in a store window. I steal their pain to create a story and then I use it to make myself cry for money. Truth is, all the stories are real, even if I make them up. And the truth is, nobody wants to feel pain, but nobody will let go of it. So I feel it for them. But that is what I am, a heart. I started to cry at an early age for money because my parents said I had a talent for it. From 10 at night until 2 in the morning, I sat on a glossy white cylindrical formica platform stationed at the end of the bar, and I cried the gamut of sadness from misty simpering to full throttle sobbing. Seated on my stool, I was visible to everyone. The brains lined up below me and asked me to cry about hurtful things that had happened to them. They paid me to cry for them because they could not, did not want to cry. Not only did it embarrass them because they weren't able to, but theirs was the unbearable pain that begun with hand tremors and ended with blinding migraines. I'd lean down to feel the warm, moist whispers quivering in my ears. Their hushed reasons for sorrow, the loss of a job, a lover, or a parent, streamed into my ears and out my eyes for four straight hours. During that time, the brain stared at me as I wailed and groaned away their sadness, their faces expressionless while they watched me, and afterward, they thanked me with a generous tip and told me how good I made them feel. The first night metal came into the bar, I cried the best that I could. Metals are rare, and I was somewhat starstruck. Through my tear-clouded eyes, I searched for the silvery glint of her mask that bared her toothy grin, and I listened for the faint scraping of her armor as she shifted in her chair. She sat in the corner with a particular group of eight to ten brains. They chattered and laughed. Rarely were they silent. Their conversational cadence soothed me. Sentences that rose up followed by rounds of bassoon-like laughter. There was a certain stool at the bar where I sat to stare unobtrusively at the brains, old at their exposed brains resembling shiny bulbous mounds of soft caramels pressed together. On weekends, I attempted to glimpse the red numbers on the upper back quadrants of their large heads. I obsessed over spotting them, as difficult as it was. Their IQs were always 140 or above. I liked to see if their behavior seemed above or below their IQ. I added up the group's IQ and found the median, and then I'd figure out who was the leader, who was the runt of the litter. But like I said, I am a voyeur. Metal never denied that she was a brain, but this is not why I loved her. Through the slits in her mask, I saw metal react with her eyes, and I believed she was a heart. Hearts were not stupid, but we were considered too emotional to use our intelligence to the best of our abilities, but just like the brains, our hearts were on display. In the middle of our sternums and on the outside, the color of our emotions throbbed for all to see. When I was embarrassed, like when a group of brains caught me staring at them, my heart turned orange-red and beat rapidly, galloping away from the brains who laughed at me. It beat so fast it ached for two days straight. Most often I kept my coat on so they wouldn't see how I felt. But brains knew why hearts did this. And if they were drunk enough, they humiliated you for it. Which they did to me. I sat on that very same stool, my heart's embarrassment poked out between the top two buttons of my coat like a piece of burning ember. They, the smoky drunk with brains, pointed at me and giggled as they covered their heads with their hands or placed their cocktail napkins over their numbers. I scrutinized 143 in the group. I eyed my heart in the brass bar railing I leaned against. I watched it turn mustard yellow and beat stronger. This told me I was jealous. I knew I was as smart as 143, but 143's confidence made me covet her tawny ovoid head. She acted like a 163, the way she insolently tapped the ash off her cigarette and laughed at something amusing that 157 had just said. I wondered if she had ever known if I had ever known a confident heart, and I realized I had not as I peeked at my yellowness glowing down below the brains that metal sat with were my regulars; they liked my work, and I knew they made up sad events, so I would cry for them when I worked my crying shift, My heart idled in a coal black that excited them. I knew they were turned on because they were quiet. I couldn't see them sitting at their table when I cried, but I heard them clapping when I finished. If metal was there, I smiled at the sound of her tinny hands crashing together. I remember when metal first spoke to me. I stood at the bar and I felt something cold and rough scrape my thigh. She said, oh, sorry, didn't realize I was so close. Her eyes shining, her eyes shining expressively like smooth beads of aquamarine, answered with a me to my who. Next she uttered the words I still hear before I go to sleep. You're a heart. That's passion, right? How beautiful. That's why you're such a good crier. Then I saw those teeth and looked at the steel that covered her from head to toe, and I wanted to pour myself inside her metal clothes. I said that it was just a scratch, and she replied, something to remember me by. As she banged off, I wondered if I could ever forget the metal clad answer that I had finally found. Thank Thank you.
2: Maritza Rubio is a writer from Santa Ana, California. She was a 2008 Emerging Voices Fellow and received a Bread Loaf Foundation Scholarship in 2010. She writes about Latinas, voodoo, and animals, and tonight about a wedding gone
8: really bad. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you all for coming. This is mighty, mighty. I had to do it. She's the one who sent the invitation like that, Gary Teague and guest, and guest. Gary and I have been together for eight years. He took me to my senior prom, went to both of my graduations, and threw me my 25th birthday party last month, which she attended. All of Gary's friends, rather his bros, were also there with their wives. Susana and I were the last unmarried. I could care less, but Susana was turning 33 and those gringas became obsessed with marriage each day after their 30th birthday, as if each day without a ring added a wrinkle to their forehead. Gary refused to see any friction between us. I knew he sensed that I clung to him like a little girl whenever we went out as a group. That each question I asked Susana would be answered with the back of her head because she had turned to answer someone more important. But he couldn't ignore it at Leanne's wedding. I know Gary saw it then. We were seated together and all those girls started clapping when Brick House came on. They squealed and reached out to each other's hands to rush the dance floor. They knew I was looking at them. And I'm embarrassed to admit I half expected Lisa, Brandy, Kiana, or even Susana herself to grab my hand and lead me to the dance floor, thinking we would all look like satin flowers laughing and twirling to the Commodores. Gary didn't say anything, but he knew. He's not stupid, just weak. He rubbed my back until the urge to cry subsided and the song was over. Why didn't you come out with us, Linda? Susanna asked out of breath, smiling as she reclaimed her seat from her spontaneous soul train moment. I smiled because I wanted her question to be sincere. Gary leaned over and whispered, it's Belinda Susie, her name is Belinda. I knew more about Susana than she knew about me, which wasn't hard since the bitch couldn't even remember my name. (laughs) Gary's bros were nothing but a bunch of chismosos, even worse than me and my sisters. Susana was born and raised in Missouri and by age 14 had developed a severe eating disorder. She went to a shrink to help squash it, but later in college, a relapse from the stress and competition of getting good grades and the self-imposed pressure to be the best caused her to drop to 98 pounds. Her father had a severe wandering eye and, Gary said, had cheated on his wife with nine different women when Susanna's mom was pregnant, one for each month. Susana moved to California to get away from her parents' dysfunction and became an I eat fish only vegetarian. She had tried every seared ahi salad in Orange County and never finished one. She twirled her hair when she talked. She hated most women. She was rude to waiters and once, while drunk, she called my car a piece of shit. I went dress shopping for Susana's wedding and realized I hated her. Soft coral tank dress, a red halter. The coral was flattering to my skin and hit the knee. She is Gary's best friend's girl. The red dress was clingy and mid thigh. She called my car a piece of shit. (laughs) The coral had a straight neckline. Susanna is extremely insecure. The red one plunged. She asked Gary if I had a green card. The coral dress looked like springtime. She might change after she gets married. The red was violent like drops of blood on bathroom tile. She thinks she's better than me. On the day of Susanna's wedding, I wore a long gray dress coat. I left it on through the ceremony and waited until we all got to our table in the reception hall. I don't know what those girls knew about me before Gary and I broke up if they gossiped about my implants or how much money I made and how did I really get such a good job. All they knew was that I lived 20 miles inland and they lived on the beach, that I didn't have to work for my tan or use collagen on my lips and that their men didn't know where to put their eyes when I took off my coat. I am a brick house. <laughs> After my third sangria, I had no problem standing up and cheering when Susana and Jake walked into the hall. That's when I saw him. The silver-haired man by the bar with a glass of amber in his hand—brandy or cognac, some classy old man shit like that. He looked like he had strong hands and the same steely blue eyes Susanna had. Susanna in her fancy white pastry dress. She approached the DJ booth for typical bride announcements. I waited until everyone sat down to excuse myself. Gary grabbed my hand to keep me seated. I shook free from his grip, making sure to give my cleavage an extra jiggle, and made my way out of the corner table, saying excuse me while gently stroking the backs of different men like a kindergarten game. Excuse me, Jason. Duck. Can I get through Brett? Duck. Pardon me, Todd. Duck. Silver fox spots me. Goose. He approached me in the hallway and made a comment about how he felt sorry for the son of a bitch that had to pay for all this. Oh wait, that's me. (laughs) He reached into his pocket to pull out a cigar. I heard Susana choke up while thanking everyone for sharing in her very special day. So are you friends with the bride or the groom? He asked, eyes wandering all over my body. Neither, I said. I took a step toward him and put his hand on my ass. Then with the cigar still in his mouth, I pressed my mouth against his and slipped my tongue in between his teeth. By the time he had me pressed up against the tampon machine, holding my tits in his strong hands, I heard the roar of wedding guests clapping. My cue. I tugged at his belt buckle and dropped to my knees. I think it was her cousin or her sister that caught us. It doesn't matter. (laughs) But one of those blondes had a mean back alley punch. I don't know what daddy did at that moment. All I know were screams and gaping faces and cum and blood and dislodged sinus all at the back of my throat at once. It's Belinda Susie. Her name is Belinda. She hasn't forgotten.
2: Sylvia Sukop writes about art, faith, community, and other good causes. Her memoir, Difficult Life, is framed by the death of her youngest brother, Alex. Sylvia is a graduate of Bucknell University and an NYU International Center for Photography, and a grateful recipient of the 2009 Emerging Voices Fellowship. Sylvia.
9: Thank you. Thank you, Libby. And um, I just want to give a shout out to my other EVs that are here from my year from 2009. uh, and, And all of the past and future EVs that may be here today. I was 19 myself when Alex was born and I remembered when he was a baby how I'd watch him sleep in his crib at night. How the darkness of the room would play tricks with my vision, distorting his face through the wooden bars. This scared and fascinated me and I played with the visual effect, first looking at Alex directly as he melted into a monstrous, illegible shadow, um, then turning my head and looking at him sideways, discovering that my peripheral vision could restore his appearance to normal. I later learned that the eye is photosensitive, equipped with an aperture, the iris, along with rods and cones all working together to mediate different intensities of light. In dim or dark conditions, it's an indirect gaze that actually allows us to see best. The eyes adapt to change, I thought, perhaps the heart could too. You ready, Alex? Diane, whose father was a doctor, had mastered the art of packing Alex's wounds, a procedure required three times a day. Wearing a black tank top and jeans, her left eyebrow pierced with a small silver ring, Di sat on a kitchen chair, her knees touching the edge of Alex's mattress. My brother tilted the full length of his nude body toward her, giving her his belly. Old enough to be Alex's mother, Di raised her tattooed arm to adjust the headlamp that also served to hold back her thick auburn hair. She then slipped her hands into a pair of latex gloves and leaned forward to visually inspect the infected area. In the aftermath of his second surgery, Alex was battling a nasty infection, two sticky wounds tunneling deep into his abdomen where the incision failed to heal properly. It's as if someone poked him in fun like the Pillsbury Doughboy, then realized in horror that the holes would not close after their fingers were withdrawn. His wounds oozed thick pus like blood streaked petroleum jelly, and out on the porch, The pile of discarded rags we used to catch the stuff as it leaked out of him, grew larger by the day. Meanwhile, invisible to the eye, tumors were multiplying rapidly inside of Alex's body. At worst, the hospice nurse warned, they could rupture his aorta or penetrate his spine. The gaping rawness of it all, far from a sterile operating room, brought to mind battlefield surgery on gut-blasted young soldiers, which I had read somewhere is what led to the invention of anesthesia. Alex had already ramped up to double morphine patches, angled white stripes like war paint across his bony chest. As always, Di offered him an extra dose of morphine for this 15-minute procedure, knowing he would refuse. Instead, he wanted someone to lie behind him, spooning his own version of pain management. I jumped at the opportunity, in my orange pajamas, vestments of willful brightness that I wore on my visits with Alex here on the farm. I climbed onto the bed and pressed flat up against his backside my left hand resting across our two upturned hips. Dai removed the old gauze first, slowly drawing the whole putrid length of it out of each wound. Then she irrigated the wounds, rinsing them with sterile bottled water, and finally she repacked them with new gauze. Using two long wooden sticks as forceps, lending the whole ceremony a Japanese air, She lifted fresh cotton strips, wet and neatly accordion folded, from a jar of iodine fluid, and gently fed them directly into each cavity. While Di worked on his wounds, Alex pulled my hand forward like the buckle on a seat belt toward his thighs, holding it there firmly pinching the muscle between my thumb and index finger so fiercely he seemed able to transfer the pain out of his body and into mine. I remembered when Alex was little, taking him to a small ski area in Pennsylvania not far from where we lived then. I taught him to ski by placing him and his short skis in between my long ones, both of us facing forward. He leaned back against my legs, neither of us using poles, and we glided down the the slope as one, going not for speed but for a fearless and intuitive connection with the snow. It's one of my favorite memories of Alex, our easy physicality and how he trusted me. I craved these moments of physical closeness with my brother, though for him, the fact that I was the one spooning him during this procedure seemed less significant. Anyone could have and had done the same job. This was the routine, but like every aspect of his care, it never felt routine to me. Thank you.
2: Denise Ujara is the recipient of numerous, numerous recognitions of excellence which include a mid-career COLA fellowship from the City of Los Angeles Department of Cultural Affairs and funding from the Asian Cultural Affairs Council. She is a pen emerging voice from
0: 1999. Hi, it's an honor to be included in Strange Cargo and I and my baby to be, thank you. I'm going to read from an experimental piece that I've been working on in a workshop with Barbara Henning in uh, Tucson at the University of Arizona's uh, Poetry Center. I'm not in school right now, but I live nearby. Lost Things. Helsingin kadun Nimit I once had a lover whose father had no legs. Petri showed me a photograph of his family from 1962. He was one of eight children gathered hastily to pose in front of a picnic table. He was blonde, thin, an eight-year-old, second youngest, smiling widely, nestled in a sea of brown and blonde-haired siblings. In the middle of the family sat the mother and the father. His mother wore a proud mother's smile and dressed in a slightly bleached dress. It was bleached from the photograph's age. It was difficult to tell what she was thinking, but that is the point of such a smile. One can only note that she is the mother. His father sat on the picnic table bench. I could not discern if he was simply sitting with his legs folded under him or if he did not have any, or if his legs were outstretched but overexposed in the sunlight rendered invisible. The photograph looked odd to me for other reasons, too. I had never seen so many Finns smiling at the same time. People in Finland do not smile because that would be too forced an emotion. But here, everyone was smiling. Maybe the family had decided through a series of subliminal messages shuttled to and fro from each other, between each other, that they would always smile when they posed with photos with their legless father. When did he lose them, I asked? During the Civil War, many lives were lost. He was lucky. Did he fight for the Reds or the Whites? I couldn't remember what the answer was because I was studying the picture. Did he tell me that his father was fighting for the Reds? You would think I would remember. If I were finished, I would catalog that information. His father fought for the Red Guard. He was a social democrat and sided with the Bolshevists, or his father fought for the White Army, a conservative backed by the Germans. <clears throat> but I could not remember on which side his father fought. I only knew that his father went to battle with two legs and lost them both. He lost them, as if one day he would find them again. Moon kinimi, moon kivori, Lur lürkardintanku. I have been at this residency for two weeks. There are two more weeks to go in Helsinki. The Finnish language has begun to sound like Japanese to me, although I don't speak either fluently. The people have even begun to look Japanese to me, (laughs) although they are completely different. Auti is a sweet artist who volunteers to help me with my installation. She takes me to a place where they give away clothing, and we ask permission to use articles of clothing in my project. We walk through the train stations, post offices, faraway steel mills, and we place objects, lost objects, along the way an old shoe, a stuffed rabbit, money, with tags that say, Please return to Sokos department store and after this we finally fall asleep on the couches in her apartment. She has freckles. Why did I I trust Petity when we met on the Sibelius train to Russia? When the Russian official came and looked at our passports, he could see that I was American and that he was, and I could see he was Finnish. We were foreigners on our way to St. Petersburg. Later we began a conversation as the train rocked along. I told him where I was staying, probably not safe, but I did it anyway. How else were we going to meet up again? He and his younger friend Gregory, an Algerian immigrant, came looking for me at the youth hostel, but the front desk was suspicious of them and wouldn't get any information. At the time I was at the Hermitage, We happened to meet again later outside the hostel. We went to dinner at a cafe and I had no business getting into a cab with him, letting him whisper to me that he wanted to make love. Let's go to my apartment. It's not too far. I was a single woman with American dollars and some converted rubles in the middle of St. Petersburg in a cab driving to the outskirts of town. There stood a giant high-rise cement apartment building, similar to the ones I'd seen in Huairo, China. They were monstrous, but they didn't pretend to be anything than what they were, unlike the salmon-colored, prefabricated apartments in Los Angeles. I hadn't climaxed in two years, but now I have. I want to come and visit you, he says through the phone line. Yes, try not to use any slang, I say. You can take the Sibelius train. I will take the Russian train. It is cheaper. My money is all in rubles now. I stood on the phone booth, in the phone booth at the island, watching the light rain fall down around the glass booth, lit up by an old-fashioned street lamp. The island was a mixture of old and modern. I was living in an artist colony with furnishings that looked like they were from Ikea. At one time, the Suomalina Artist Center was a Swedish fortress, and then it was bombed during a battle. And then it was a prison camp during the Civil War. Thousands died in the camp on the island. Many soldiers were tortured, maybe even in in my bedroom. Our doors were thick as two men with an iron ring for a doorknob. Vikings and Ikea in Finland. Petri said he often met with prostitutes because they understood him better. They were more open, they had more spirit and laughed more. His business had failed during the recession in the 80s and he had become an alcoholic and gained 80 pounds. Then he moved to Russia, which is like when Californians move to Mexico because it's cheaper, and he lost all his weight, although he was still a large framed man with a square jaw. He did not drink anymore, and he became a vegetarian. He was a divorced father with two children. I think they spelled my name wrong, I told the curator as she handed me a review in the finished paper. My name doesn't have an N at the end. Many artists think that when they read their name in the paper, but that is how we spell your name, when your name modifies something. So when my name becomes an adjective, it changes. More or less, yes. I have put Petteri in a box in my mind. I have thrown away the notes, photos, emails, addresses. I have moved. I have family. He was a lover, but I certainly was not in love. We made love in a blank place in a Nordic country where I was running from the fists and screams of lovers back home. Broken window, betrayal, living alone in a city. In Finland, I could burn everything down every time I crossed the water on the ferry from Helsinki to the artist colony on Sua Melina Island. If I wanted to, I could disappear altogether. It was October and it was surprisingly sunny. Petri showed me the photograph of his family as we sat in a small cafe on Sua Melina, near the dock for the ferry. The ferry took 15 minutes from the port of Helsinki to the island. He had barely caught that last one that evening because he had missed the connecting train while still in Russia and ended up hitching a ride with rich Russians in a BMW. When they asked him what was his hurry, he said, For love! And then they all nodded. Hmm. I waited for him at the edge of the island watching the dark water that was full of clouds. The clouds in Finland hung lower in the sky than in America as if the firmament above rested lower to the earth in that part of the world the clouds churned downward and became water and then turned back up again to the sky tossed and recycled from the force of the sea sana teperi onnan apartamento yenko sovientaren loco loco chica thank you
2: Our last reader tonight is Manaz Turner. She was born in Pakistan and raised in Southern California. She's a 2009 Emerging Voices Fellow. Her poems have appeared in the Journal of Pakistan Studies, Cahoots Magazine, Pedestal Magazine, Asia Writes, and Anthology of California Poets. She is currently at work on her first poetry collection, Tongue Tied, A Memoir and Poems. Manaz.
10: Salaam everyone. So I'm gonna read three poems tonight and the first one I'm gonna read was inspired by a friend's wedding uh, in Los Angeles. And this wedding took place a couple of years ago and it was a traditional Muslim wedding. So there wasn't any alcohol served at the wedding. Um, And a couple of friends of mine and I decided on the spur to sneak in a bottle of vodka to (laughs) enjoy in secret. So um, this poem is revealing that secret and it's called Vodka and Sugared Almonds. To be drunk at a Muslim wedding in Los Angeles amid the blurred sadis, pakoras, and cell phones. To be drunk in the company of parents, but secretly so. The flasks of vodka hidden beneath the table lined with peach cloth. To be green and drunk in the merry of boisterous aunties waving their hands with care as if holding tiny Pakistani flags. To be drunk with friends, acting like teenagers in our thirties, but secretly so, a generation tempted by American libations, tugged in all directions by shoo-juti heart. To be green and drunk and masking the breath with sugared almonds, squelching giggles as the aunties quiz us under chandeliers. Married yet, bete? Still no children? Have you gained some weight? Will you marry a Punjabi like your sister did? Or will you be drunk in a way your parents never were in Lahore, watching James Bond films in their tea-stained living room in the 70s, dreaming of Hollywood, of the visions, not the vices offered by this world. Now the aunties stand like minarets in a liquored garden of cigars. To be drunk in the north of polite society, at what amounts to an ethnic wedding in a hungover country, the aunties wave their delicate hands as if about to chant a prayer. Near the buffet, lined with kebabs and thickas, flasks of vodka tilt. Liquid skims the edge of cloth. Later, almonds shake loose out of a can to mask the breath. Okay, um, the next poem I'm gonna read was inspired by a trip to Sequoia, and it's a nature poem, and it's called Lip Reading in Sequoia. The crunch of twigs beneath my shoes and whiffs of brandied bark I am perched on a wooden bench, feet planted over yellow soil. Here at 6,000 feet the air is cooler and crisp. I hear bits of Spanish, Chinese, Portuguese, even a hurry up in Hindi. Back at the museum we ate grapes in the car, then drove up windy roads listening to the wind stir up the leaves. All day the liquored branches seemed to flirt. My husband whispers, let's hug a tree. Some are 3,000 years ancient, and for once I feel less like an aging teacher with wisps of white hair behind the ears. Instead, I'm a Darwinian mammal lip-reading the Esperanto of the breeze. This park, like a continent, can hold me in my fears. Later, we drive higher and higher. The peaks murmur in that other language no mortal can speak. I understand something, however. I couldn't explain what, but there's a splashing in my chest as if a tree rotting at its roots has suddenly fallen down hard and slammed through my doubts. My final poem is called A Second Eulogy, and it's a poem about the sadness one experiences when they have to go back to work after a relaxing vacation, okay? (laughs) A second eulogy. It was the saddest slice of banana cream pie because it tasted so good. Just the right amount of salt and sweetness. We ate slowly after dinner, asked the waitress for coffee too. Decaf because it was almost 10, because it was the last day of winter break. We talked about our plans for summer, but like teenagers discussing retirement, our voices did not carry sun. Instead, our forks dug eagerly into mirth. This is whipped cream as it should be, my husband said. The outer edge was layered with bananas. Every bite was a quick death, the end of something only beginning. We finished our pies down to the crusts, our hands reluctant to let go of the forks. When I die, I said, pointing at the crumbs on my plate, bury me in these. My husband nodded. I pictured my desk at work, buried in papers, six months of post-its signaling my fate. Had I worn sweats, I might have ordered another slice. One didn't feel enough. It was like a spotlight on a tomb. But that night, I couldn't make room for a second eulogy.
2: Thank you all for coming tonight. Can we get another hand for all the readers? Thank you, Janet Fitch, very much for coming. And the beautiful forward. And all the readers in this anthology and audience. This anthology would not be possible without Sarah Balcom, if she'll come up here. Michelle Meiring did the beautiful art. Nice um, have a glass of wine, buy several of these books. Um, and also, I'm gonna introduce Adam Summers, he's the executive director of Penn. He's just gonna say some closing remarks and we're gonna introduce a new program that uh, We have just started. So, Adam.
11: I want to thank you all for coming out. Um, As said, I'm Adam Summers, the executive director, and uh, I'm shorter than Sylvia too. Um, So, we have this program, obviously, Emerging Voices, and we have another outreach program called Pen in the Classroom. And over the years, we've been trying to find a way to connect these in a continuum, starting with creative writing in the high schools and underserved schools and getting to the place where we have published authors who become full PEN members. uh, That isn't the reason, but that's the way it would hopefully work. So over the last couple of years, in talking to people who've gone through the Emerging Voices program, some of them uh, find themselves in a place where the structure of the program is something they relied on, and if they haven't quite finished the manuscript they're working on, they sometimes find themselves stalled out, and we're trying to find a way to address that problem. So we've developed a program called The Mark. And this is a program only for graduates of the EV program. So if you are an EV graduate or you know someone who is an EV graduate who's not here tonight, you might mention this. And what this is, is The the Mark is a rigorous manuscript finishing program for emerging voices uh, alumni. And the program applications are being accepted starting today and running through October 12th, and are in that box right there. Okay. The four participants chosen for the fiction-nonfiction session, which will run from January to April, will be announced on October 25th. And the program includes a project defense, a midterm review, a final review, and the workshop are all mandatory program components. The project defense involves answering a series of detailed questions regarding the creation and crafting of the piece and their future goals for the project, and this allows the MARC faculty and the Penn staff to learn more about the participants' projects and to prescribe goals for the manuscript and the workshop schedule. The workshops will begin in January 2011. The workshop will meet in three-hour sessions every other week for 18 weeks and will follow the course developed during the project defense. There'll be a midterm review on March 6th, a final review on May 1st. And the basic program requirements that we're looking for is y- you must be an alumni of the Emerging Voices program, you must be a Penn associate member, you, the, um, you must live in Los Angeles, be able to get here easily enough to um, attend the classes and do what you need to do without you know, my dog ate the homework kind of stuff happening. And we're seeking uh, program applicants whose manuscripts are completed or near completion. And in the fiction, nonfiction category, we're looking for manuscripts in the 120 page length and in poetry in the 40 page length. So once again, this will be the start of this new program. If you're an alumni, pick up an application. The rest of you have some free wine, buy a book. Thank you for coming out.